This is the word of the Lord. Hear this from Colossians 2. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives or dwells in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision not by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sin. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and which condemned us, he has taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by way of the cross. Last week, as we were going through the book of Colossians, we looked at the first eight verses of the book. And in the eighth verse, it's a bridge verse between the first eight verses and verses 9 to 15. And in that bridge verse, or the bridge thought there, Paul, in talking about the supremacy of Christ, has said that all of the philosophies of this day are hollow and deceptive. They're all hollow and deceptive. He then goes on to say that all the philosophies of our day are also either human-made or satanic. They're human-made or they're demonic. They're made by demons. And then Paul, in these next few verses, is going to move into why Christ is the answer. And I suggested last week, as I just kind of drew some diagrams, which I know I never do, that if the one philosophy is Christianity... And we see other isms, you name whatever that ism is, right? Capitalism, consumerism, environmentalism, Buddhism, you name any other ism you want, that so often our reaction is, well, you know, you just got to eliminate the ism, right? That's what we say. But that's not how we live life. As we live life and we understand these isms, we understand that there is Christianity here, But all the other isms, can't spell and talk, I just realized. All the other isms have an overlap with Christianity. Sometimes it's 3%, sometimes it's 12%, sometimes it's 16%, sometimes it's 40%. And there's this overlapping here of the ism. And then that overlap, there's a commonality where God has revealed things, both to humanity and to us as we follow his ism, And that overlap is the working of God and his truth being revealed. I suggested last week that that's why many of us who work for non-believing employers can do so and do so with good conscience. Because their ideology at work is similar enough to our ideology in the way that this operates that we don't feel we're ever compromising. But as these isms shift, whatever they may be, what often happens is is we hear the ism, we think, oh, I want to know more about that. And we begin to adopt more and more of the ism. Over and against them adopting more and more of the Christianity. So all of a sudden, our Christianity, for a believer, looks like this. 
And way more of the ism is a part of our thought system than Christianity itself. And so here Paul, as he moves on, explains what he means about who Christ is. And how are these isms hollow and deceptive? Well, verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In any other ism anywhere in the world, they can't answer questions about who God is, about who we are created by God, and about how we relate to him. They can't answer those questions. They, they can't deal with sin and the fact that we have this sinful nature and sin that needs to be dealt with. The only ism that deals with that is Christianity in its fullness. And here he says, I want you to know that in Christ, using his messianic title, not just his name, Jesus, but in Christ, Christ the Messiah, in him, all the fullness of deity dwelt or lived in bodily form. He is God the Son. He is God the Son. And deity, God, tabernacled in Jesus, in Christ the Messiah, when he was here. He was completely and fully God the Son. He's already said in chapter 1, preeminent over all of creation, everything being made by him and for him. G.K. Beale, one of the commentators I love, says this, God's holy of holies, a presence on earth, was the most preeminent reality in all of Israel. The holy of holies was found in the inner sanctum of the temple. And in the inner sanctum of the temple where God's holy of holies was, felt, was found, his, his very presence, the high priest would only enter in there and only enter in once a year, offering a sacrifice for all of Israel and for all the sins that had been unsacrificed for. It's said that the high priest would have a rope tied around him so that when he entered, if God struck him dead for his sin, they could pull him out. Because if anyone else entered, they would also be struck dead. That's the Holy of Holies, where God's very presence dwells. Christ is the escalated form of God's presence, the true Holy of Holies. As such, and as such, he himself is identified with the unique tabernacling presence and is the most preeminent one together with God in the church and in the cosmos. Now, why is this important? It's important because humanity sinned, and in our sin, we spiraled the world into death, death relationally, death physically, death emotionally, death spiritually. We spiraled the world into death, and death in all its forms. Every form of death is because of the fall. And because we spiraled ourselves into this death, Somebody had to die. God's wrath had to be against someone. But no someone could take the wrath of God. And so God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, shows up, lives a sinless life, never does anything wrong, and at the end of his life, gives his life up for us on the cross. That's why in 2 Corinthians, we hear that he who had no sin, that's Jesus, became our sin so that he could give us his righteousness. Because someone had to die, but no one could absorb the wrath on behalf of humanity except God himself. And so God came down, God the Son showed up, and God the Son absorbed, having become our sin on the cross, our wickedness, our unrighteousness, and he grants us his righteousness. That's what he does. And he can do so because he's the fullness of deity living 
in bodily form. Verse 14, verse 11, sorry. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every authority and power. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. That is great news. You've been brought to fullness. That means in Christ, you lack nothing. You lack nothing when it comes to fighting temptation. You lack nothing when it comes to understanding the brilliance of Christianity. The Spirit of God is in you. If you're a believer today, God's Spirit indwells you. God's Spirit is actually in you. And as His Spirit is in you, He equips you for everything. He grants you a fullness. You're full in Christ. It means you have everything you need to be able to navigate who God is, who you are, your relationship with Him in this world and the world. You can navigate it all. I experienced this very recently with a friend of mine. And uh, he and I were engaged in the conversation. He's a tradesman, uh, but he's a brilliant guy. And uh, it goes to our church. And every so often, this guy will say to me, hey, you know, Dwayne, I'm, I'm going through a book of the Bible, right? And do you have a commentary or two um, that I can just read along with the book of the Bible? And I'm like, yeah. He said, I need something that's not, you know, overly Greek or Hebrew because I don't know them, but something that will also challenge me. Do you have something like that? And I have commentaries on every book of the Bible, a couple of them at least, sometimes more. If I'm studying a book like Colossians, I always have five or six. And, um, and I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, to lend you a commentary for a season. And I've done that on numbers of occasions with him. And uh, he's really grown in his faith. And it's part of how he does his devotional life. And he's engaging with a conversation with some other Christian friends. And, and these other Christian friends are shifting. They're, they're hearing the ism. And they're shifting into the ism over here. And he's challenging them. And he's been walking alongside of them. And I'm asking him. He was at my house recently. And I'm asking him how that's been going. He's like, actually, it's been really tough. I'm like, why? He said, well, they've dismissed everything I've said because they said, you know, you're a tradesman. You, you have no education. I said, why, why should we be listening to you? He said, they virtually just said that to me. And I said to him, you are full in Christ. You are full in Christ regardless of what ethnic background you come from. You are full in Christ when you're in Him regardless of your social economic status. You are full in Christ regardless of your education. Is that not great news? The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Christ, in Jesus. And in Christ, He's bringing you to fullness, to completion, both around who He is who we are, how we relate to Him, and how the world really works. We have everything available to us in Christ. And He is the head, that meaning authority. He is the authority over every power and over every authority. He is in charge. Ephesians has a number of similarities to Colossians. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way, that power, this is God's power, the Father's power, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. In the Colossians, Paul names that Christ is the head over every authority and power. In Ephesians, to be comprehensive, he says his, his 
authority, his power, is over every rule, over every authority, over every power, over every dominion, over every name. Any name that can be invoked. He said, you, you invoke any emperor's name. You invoke any philosopher's name. You invoke any name you want, any other quote-unquote God's name, and his name is above them all. And God placed, this is still Ephesians, all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head, the authority, over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who lives or who fills, sorry, everything in every way. He is the head. Verse 13, no, 11. I left my glasses at home. I couldn't find them this morning. At 25 after 8, I lost them, and I supersized my notes, and they're still not big enough. I'm at font 16 and counting now without my glasses. Here we are. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the, by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Paul now talks about circumcision. And he says, we have been circumcised in Christ. Circumcision, of course, was the sign that God gave the Jewish people in the Old Testament to show that they were distinct from other nations. Other nations were not circumcising. It was the cutting off of the foreskin. It symbolized, it represented that they were cut off or set apart from other nations for God. And the male offspring, the, the, the male boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. And so here you have Paul saying, you have been circumcised, but not by a circumcision done by hands. But you're circumcised in the heart. That that is what God has done. He's actually, your whole self uh, that was ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised. Your old nature that was ruling you, your old philosophy, your old ism that was ruling you is put off. So now Christ can rule. So now Christ can reign. And it's not one that's done by the hands or by, by humanity, by anyone else. Very interesting that even in the Old Testament, if a Gentile, someone who was non-Jewish, wanted to enter into Jewish worship, they had to be circumcised. It was just part and parcel of what had to occur. They had to be circumcised. You find in the book of Exodus that if they wanted to celebrate the Passover with the Jewish people, this massive festival that celebrated the release from the Egyptian tyranny and God's power and presence by the first blood, or the, the, the sorry, the, the firstborn that would have been killed being spared because the blood of a lamb was placed on the doorpost that those Gentiles had to be circumcised. And Paul here is saying, you're all, if you're in Christ, you're all circumcised. You're circumcised, but not by the hands of men or by the hands of human beings, but rather... You're circumcised by God himself. And your heart itself, the old nature, is being cut off and cut out from you. And he says this, you've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul goes on and he says, as a reminder, you've been buried with Christ in baptism. You are dead to your old self. Baptism is representative or symbolizing of our death in Christ and our raising to new life. And here is the only passage you have in Scripture where circumcision and baptism are named together. And here in this beautiful passage, Paul says, I want you to know that you've been buried with Christ. So when we baptize someone, we take someone, we plunge them under the water, which represents their dying in Christ. We hold them there for a moment. 
depending on how we like them, depends on how, how, how long we hold them there, depends on you know, how much we like the person. Hold them there under the water for a moment, representing they've been buried with Christ, and then bringing them up again represents that they've been raised with Christ. That is baptism. Baptism is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ represented in that incredible symbol. And Paul says, I want you to know that you've been buried with Christ. In baptism. It's a symbol of what God has done. It's a symbol of the incredible work of God in your lives. I need to pause and say this for a moment. Baptism was the altar call of the New Testament. You know, when I speak at events now, they'll have altar calls at many events, right? We'll, we'll be at the front and they'll say, you know, if you felt God's Spirit at work in your life, and I'm not saying this is inappropriate, just how we do things now, they'll call people to come to the front, to come to an altar, to raise a hand, to pray with someone. Numbers of events I speak at have some type of altar call. But the altar call of the New Testament was simple. Repent and be baptized. Repentance was turning from your sin to Christ. Baptism was symbolizing that you are in Christ. And so repent and be baptized. You see that over and over again. That was the call of John the Baptist prior to Christ's coming. It was the call of Jesus and his disciples. It was the call of the apostles. Day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. And baptism is the altar call of the New Testament. So my encouragement would be, if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's a first step in following Christ. It's a first step in belief. I've repented, now I am to be baptized. And Paul here to the church in Colossae says, I want you to know that you've not only been buried with Christ and your old self that was being circumcised and cut off from you is there, but you've been raised with him through your faith in the working of God who's raised him from the dead. Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection and life, and we're raised in him. We're given new life, a new disposition, a new ism. Instead of being persuaded by the isms of the world, we now get to be persuaded by Christianity, by God's truth. And he is the first fruits of those raised to life again. Reminiscent, if you will, of Jesus is an encounter with Lazarus as he's there and his friend Lazarus has died, and Jesus is getting to the scene, and as he gets there, Martha is there, and Martha is saying, had you been here, my brother would not have died, and Jesus reminds him uh, that Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day, of, or will be resurrected, sorry, and she says, I know he will be resurrected on the last day, and I know, you know that God even now will give you whatever you want, and uh, Jesus turns to her in this moment and says, I want you to know, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And in that moment, he's not simply saying, I have the power of resurrection, and I have the power of life. He's actually saying, you're looking at resurrection. You're looking at life. It's more than just, I have power over resurrection, and I have power over life. He's saying, I am. The I am statements are him saying, in nature, in character, in being, this is who I am. I am the bread of life. I am the great shepherd. I am the door. I am resurrection. I am life. That's who I am, Martha. I am resurrection. I am life. There's no other place to go. Verse 13. And so when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave your sin. Praise his name. When you were dead, dead, unable to respond, dead, unable to save myself, dead, 
I have no power. Dead, unresponsive. That's dead. That's dead. Ephesians 1 says it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now at work in all of those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were dead, unable to respond. But because of God's great love for us, because God longed to be in relationship with us, God sent his son and God the son in him, the fullness of deity dwells. Dwells. And has always dwelt from all of eternity past. This was Paul's argument that we looked at in Colossians 1. And so here, what we have is this, is we were dead. We're now made alive in Christ. And as we're made alive in Christ, what God wants to do is this, is there's, there's Christianity. There's whatever other ism there is here. And instead of us being more persuaded, more persuaded by the ism, what God wants to see is as we come to faith in Christ, we see the brilliance of God, and we begin to adopt more and more of the Christian worldview because we understand more and more of who God is. The circle moves this way instead of the other way until we understand who God is in his fullness and how he would have us to live. He's made us alive with Christ. Tells us how he's done it. Listen to this, verse 14. He canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And when I think of my life and my sin, and I can't name all of my sin, I cannot. If I think of my life, I become weighed down with just the few sins I know I've committed even recently. I can't remember sins I committed when I was 18 or 16 or 15. But all of that sin becomes this indebtedness to God that I cannot pay. God can't look upon any sin. God can't look upon one sin. And I have an insurmountable debt that I cannot pay that has accumulated over my lifetime, now over my 49 years. And Christ took all of that indebtedness in its whole and he paid for it. That's why in uh, 2 Corinthians, it says that he who knew no sin became sin so that he could give us righteousness. He took all of my sin and he nailed it to the cross. He left it there. That sin which does two things. The first is what? It stands against us and it condemns us. The standing against us is like standing beside a cliff that you cannot climb, an insurmountable wall that you cannot get over. The law, which was given to us to show us how holy God is, the law was given to us to declare that we needed a Savior. We needed someone to come and save us. We could never save ourselves. All of a sudden, when I look at that wall of sin that I know I couldn't climb, that wall of sin that I knew that kept me from God, that wall of sin that I could never in any way ever get over, Christ says, I took your wall of sin. I took that insurmountable indebtedness, and I nailed it to the cross. I dealt with it decisively. I dealt with it conclusively. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of the law. How is Christ the fulfillment of the law? He fulfills the law in these two ways. The one way is he never broke the law. Christ kept the law perfectly. He never broke the law. In that way, he fulfilled the law. How else did Christ fulfill the law? 
He also fulfilled the law because all of the law points to him. All of the messianic promises point to him. All of the law is about him. And so he fully fulfilled the law, or he fulfilled the law in, in its, in its, in completely because he'd never sinned, he fulfilled the law, and because the law was about him. And so he then could take all of that law, all of my indebtedness, all that I owed him, and he alone could nail it to the cross as the wrath of the Father is poured out on him. But that legal indebtedness not only was a wall with which I could ever scale, it was also that which condemned me. That's why in Romans, Paul can say there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It is such good news. Good news. And he says, having disarmed all the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by way of the cross. I'm not exactly sure when this happened. I will say this. I believe firmly that on the cross, Satan thought he'd won. I really believe that. I believe that on, when Christ was on the cross, he thought, Satan thought he'd won. There he is, right? Satan behind the scenes orchestrating the Jewish leaders would bring Christ to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities now finding no guilt in him, still crucifying him. And Satan, I'm convinced in that moment, thought he'd won. The wrath of the Father is being poured out on him. Satan is watching Jesus die. How's he going to save them now? What's he going to do now? So how did he make public spectacle of him? I mean, maybe in part it was when he's on the cross and Jesus looks out on the people that are killing him and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe because you're selfish when you're on the cross. All you can think about is you. He looks out at John and he says to John, take, take care of my mom. Maybe it's when he's hanging on the cross and one of the insurrectionists that's on either side of him sees all the grace and the love flowing from Jesus because other people that were being crucified would try to get their blood on those that were killing them, would try to get their sweat on those that were killing them, would try to urinate because you would hang there naked on those that were killing them. Jesus does none of it. And maybe it's in that moment when the insurrectionist realizes there's something so unique about him that he can do something about his condition, about his dying. And he turns to Jesus and he says, hey, would you, um, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. Maybe those are some of the ways he made public, public spectacle of the principalities and powers by way of the cross. Maybe it's when the centurion, one of the people responsible for his death, said, surely this was the Son of God. Or maybe it happened three days later. Because Satan could not accuse him or own him. Um, Satan had nothing on him. You know, sin could not accuse him. Death could not destroy him. Maybe it was because three days later, when the power of the Father raised him to life again, in that moment, I am convinced Satan knew he'd lost. I think he knew a bit before that. I think when Peter talks about how he descended into hell, Jesus, I don't believe he descended into hell for any punishment. When he cried out on the cross, it is finished. I believe he had suffered all the punishment, the wrath was being, of the Father that, that he would absorb was being poured out on him in its entirety. He sells the insurrectionist, so be with him that day in paradise. I believe he only descended into hell to declare his victory. I think that's what happened there. And so I believe in that moment, as you hear that, he made public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by way of the cross. The cross was Christ's means to our salvation. That torturous 
execution where the wrath of the Father was poured out on him was Christ's means of showing I am deity in its fullness, living in bodily form. That's who I am. And so you can trust me. You can trust what I have said. You can trust what I have done. You can trust who I am. I have canceled your charge, your sinful debt. I have disarmed the powers and authorities. I have won. So then we come to the end of this and go, so what? A couple of thoughts. The one is this. I think one of the things we need to be thinking through is how we unashamedly present the gospel in our culture. And so when you have Christianity and you have what this other is and you have this commonality, which allows us to work and live and be in those places, instead of us being constantly moved into the ism, we need to say, hey, you know where I get this from? I, I get this from the brilliance of God. God. God taught me this. God speaks about this in his word. And then we begin to move into other things that God has said, sharing with them the gospel, moving them further and further into the Christianism, so finally the Spirit of God opens their eyes and grants them life in Christ. Secondly, the one in whom we believed is incredible. This Jesus in whom we've trusted. I recently purchased Life magazine. They, they've, you can see that everywhere. They've put out, I didn't realize this until Paul pointed it out to me actually, but they've put out the 20th uh, anniversary edition of the articles they wrote 20 years ago on Jesus. And they talk about him, and they talk about his life on earth and what it was like and the influence he's had. I mean, it is, it is incomprehensible, the influence Jesus had, having never ruled a nation, having nev never run a military, like nothing like that. If you track through history of, of those that are great, that have had any amount of influence, even close to the influence of Christ, they have led large militaries for the most part. They have ruled large nations. There are some philosophers that have some impact, but nowhere near the impact of Christ. More volumes have been written about Jesus than any other single person ever. In fact, then they would say than any other person with others combined. If you combine them. More volumes written about Jesus. I've said this a number of times in my messages, but you take a look at the centerpiece of Christianity. And in any other religion, that center of that religion always holds with its origin of place. So you look at Buddhism, and where is the most of, of, of Buddhism? It's where Buddhism started. Same with the Muslim faith. Same with the Hindu faith. Oh, there is some that has shifted. Of course there is. And some of that shift occurs through immigration and through migration, through refugees coming to other lands. But Christianity, its centerpiece has always shifted. Today, if you look for the centerpiece of Christianity, it's not, it's not in the Middle East. It's not, it's not in Bethlehem. It's not in Jerusalem. Where is the centerpiece of Christianity? Its center is continually on the move because he is on the move. And today, there are more Christians in Asia and South America and Africa than any other place in the world. You look at those three different places and Christians on the move. Nowhere near from its origin, place of origin. Talks about the brilliance of Christ. Why is this true of him? Because the fullness of deity dwells in him. And because the fullness of deity dwells in him, we can trust him. Because the fullness of deity dwells in him, he's looked after our sin. Andrew, you guys can come up. Because the fullness of deity has dwelt in him, he alone can take our indebtedness, this wall we could never climb, 
He alone could take our condemnation. He could nail them concisively to the Christ cross. And in doing so, he could free us from our sin so that it could be circumcised from us. Our old nature could be defeated and we could find ourselves full in Christ. It is his brilliance. That's what he's done. And he grants it to us. Is that not a great gift? He grants us to us. The Spirit indwells you today. He grants it to you. Regardless of your economic background, regardless of, of your social economic status, regardless of your educational background, you're found in Christ if you're a believer today. On the way in, you may have taken a communion cup. If not, you're welcome to go out to the table and get one. And this cup celebrates that Christ is the fullness of deity who lived in bodily form and gave his life up for us so that he could defeat our debt, destroy our condemnation, and raise us up with him. On the top of this cup, there's a wafer, it's a simple piece of bread that reminds us of the body of Christ for us. And then there's juice, the juice reminding us of the blood of Christ that shed for us. Today we celebrate him. The fullness of God, God the Son, come down. If you're not a believer today, we invite you to just listen and watch as we celebrate our Christ. But today, if you'd like to know more about him, if today you've come and you've been like, wow, you know, I have a better understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, and I would love to know him. I'd love to tell you more about him. There's other pastors here with me, other elders from our church here. I'm sitting right over here. Pastor Paul's just a couple seats behind me. There's other pastors and elders in the room. We'd love to be able to share with you the hope we have in Christ and would invite you just to watch as we participate. But today, if you're a believer, in a moment as we sing, I'm going to invite you to take this cup and as you're ready to celebrate Christ by taking this wafer and drinking this drink and remembering Christ who the fullness of deity dwells in, in and who has granted you fullness, defeating every authority and power praise his name will you pray with me lord jesus we are so amazed that you would come son of god god the son and live amongst us we're so thankful that you chose to be here living a sinless life and then dying for our sin you destroyed death you defeated satan conquered sin you took our debt you nailed it to the cross. You took our condemnation. You dealt with it. And you've raised us up with you, Lord Jesus. For that, we are eternally thankful. So, oh God, in these moments as we celebrate you, as we worship you, may we celebrate who you are. God, come down. Who came down and lived and died to grant us life. Thank you that you've raised us to life in you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.